Okay. We're in Matthew chapter 17. Remember last week, Jesus and uh, his three apostles, Peter, James, and John, are descending from the mountain. That's where we left them. And uh, as they're coming down the mountain, a discussion ensues. Okay? And the discussion is found in Matthew 17 and verse 10. And here's what it says. And his disciples ask him, saying, Why then do the scribes say, Elijah must come first? Why then do the scribes say, Elijah must come first? Now, the most important word in that sentence is the word then. See that? Why then? That means that this question is predicated on something that's just been said. Something's been said, and now they're saying, well, why then do the scribes or the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? And we know that's true because if you look back at verse 9, look what it says there. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And uh, this is what the disciples can't get their heads around. This is what's caused them confusion. They do not understand that the Messiah has to die. They can't get that. If the Messiah is going to die and then be raised, then they say, well, why then, if that's going to happen, why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? It just doesn't jive. It doesn't make sense. And uh, so you need to understand that. That's what led to the question. So Jesus answers in verse 11. He's, he answered and he said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Now, Jesus here is not agreeing with the scribes' interpretation of Elijah coming. He's just agreeing that Elijah does have to come first. Which, by the way, is based on Malachi chapter 4, where Malachi says that before Messiah comes, Elijah must come. So Jesus is simply acknowledging that Elijah must come first before Messiah, okay? So he's not agreeing with their interpretation because the scribes, you know what they believed. They believed that Elijah was going to come first, preach repentance, restore uh, Israel into a right relationship with God. Then Messiah would come and set up his kingdom. Jesus doesn't believe that's the way it's going to happen. But he does agree that Elijah will come first. So he agrees with them that Elijah will come first, but he doesn't agree with their interpretation of the events. Okay. Now, here's how I know that. Okay? Look at the next verse. Look at verse 12. But I say to you. You see that? But I say to you. Notice in verse 10, the scribes say, do you see that in verse 10? The scribes say Elijah must come first, but look at verse 12. But I say to you, see, that's a contradiction, isn't it? What does Jesus say? But I say to you, Elijah has what? Has come already. Elijah has come already, and they did not know him. They did not recognize him. But they did to him what they wished. They belittled him and they persecuted him. And uh, who's the they? 
Well, it'll be the scribes in this context. They, the scribes believe that Elijah has to come before Messiah and restore things, but Jesus says, guess what? He came already, and they didn't even know it. <laughs> they missed out on it. They didn't recognize it. All they did was belittle him and persecute him, and then at the end of verse 12, Jesus says, and likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. So all this makes sense. And verse 13 says, Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of who? John the Baptist. So what you have, according to Jewish tradition, is that Elijah would precede the Messiah, restore a relationship between the people and God through repentance. Then the Messiah would come and set up the kingdom. That interpretation is wrong. That's not how it happened. Jesus says, Elijah has already come. That's John the Baptist. And he's dead. I'm the Messiah. And guess what? I'm going to die too. So Jesus is the one who understands how everything is going to work out. And the scribes are following just Jewish tradition. Now, does that make sense? It's important that you get that, because that's as they're coming down from the mountain. Now they reach the base of the mountain, okay? And that's what these next verses are about. And look what it says in verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And so I brought him to your disciples. That would be the nine disciples that are still down on the mountain. But they could not cure him. Okay? So what we have is that Jesus comes down, and immediately he's faced with a dilemma. And the dilemma is that there's this young man, and he's got a problem. And the nature of that problem, according to my translation, which is the New King James, is that he has epilepsy <clears throat> very poor translation the uh many of the other translations says he has seizures who says it says he has seizures a little better um the old king james and some of you may be using that says he's a lunatic anybody using that says lunatic that's because the greek word here Translated into my Bible, epilepsy, and other Bible seizures, literally means moonstruck. My son is moonstruck, and he falls into the fire, and he falls into the water. Uh, the father's analysis of the kid's problem is that the moon is affecting his behavior. He uh, becomes suicidal. He's throws himself into the fire. Of course, you can burn to death. Throws himself into the water. You can drown. And uh, like Lon Chaney Jr., remember that? When the full moon came out? <laughs> Suddenly the hair began to grow. The toes became claws. And suddenly you saw this full moon. You heard, oh! <laughs> Moonstruck. The father believes that the kid's problem is that there's some astrological problem affecting the young man. And he says, I brought him to you, the nine guys down here on the mount, off the mountain, and they couldn't, they couldn't cure him. 
So uh, that's the nature of the kid's problem. Now, I want you to notice that the father has this unwavering faith. Uh, He's got a problem that he can't solve, but he thinks he knows who can solve it, and he asks these guys to help him. Now, and then when they can't help him, he brings him to Jesus. Father's faith never wavers. He thinks these guys can solve his problem. Now, remember back in Matthew 10, which we studied probably several months ago, Jesus sends the 12 out. Remember, he sends them two by two out into the villages, and he gives them authority to heal. But for some reason, that ability has now slipped away from them. (laughs) Because when this man brings the kid to the nine, they don't have the power to heal. Now, this tells me something. This tells me there are many times people need help, and they turn to us for help. They turn to Christians for help. Especially they turn to clergy people for help. And uh, we don't have any power to heal them. And they're totally disappointed. Well, fortunately, this man knows once he turns, to, he turns to the disciples and they can't help him, at least he has enough sense to go directly to Jesus. And that's what people end up doing. They come to their clergy. He says, we'll pray if it's God's will. Blah, 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 you know. They walk away as sick as they were when they came. And fortunately, they can go directly to Jesus. <clears throat> so when Jesus hears this, he expresses his disappointment. Look at what he says in verse 17. Then Jesus answered and he said, and I believe he's speaking to these nine and even maybe the people around, O faithless and perverse generation. This is an indictment on these disciples. He says, you lack faith. Look, faithless. You lack faith. You don't have an ounce of faith in you. And uh, he calls them a perverse generation. A crooked generation. Perverse means to not go straight. And he calls it a generation. He says, you're, part, you're acting like the generation around you, like the people around you. Uh, if the father just went to just an ordinary person on the street, he could have gotten the same results. Because you're acting just like them. You're faithless. Now, this idea of a perverse, faithless, crooked generation is mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. And it's very significant where it's mentioned. And I want to show this to you. I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And look what... This is Moses speaking, and you can see that um, in the last verse of Deuteronomy 31. It says, Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. So here's what he says. Look down in verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish a crooked, a perverse, and a crooked generation. The exact same words. Notice that he's speaking to the people of God. (laughs) He's not speaking to the Hittites. He's speaking to God's people. But he says, you're just like the Hittites. You are faithless. 
perverse and crooked generation. See? And then look up at verse, over at verse 20. He said, God speaking through Moses, he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. Watch this. For they are a perverse generation. Now look at this next sentence. Children in whom is no faith. That's what Jesus says. Faithless. Perverse. And he's talking to his nine disciples there. Now it's interesting that this, this is Moses speaking. And just like Jesus, Moses has been up on a mountain, hasn't he? And while he was up on a mountain, his face shone, didn't it? Just like Jesus. See? And he is leading his people out of Egyptian bondage into the Exodus. And now Jesus has been up on a mountain. His face is shown. And guess what he's doing? He's leading his people in a new Exodus out of Roman bondage. And so when Jesus quotes, he quotes here out of Deuteronomy, and there's a sense in which Jesus is a second Moses who is leading an exodus, bringing us, he's delivering us from oppression. So this is the same thing. Now, the same wording is also found in another New Testament passage, and I want you to turn over to Philippians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul speaks. Philippians chapter 2. And when you get to Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> he is giving the church at Philippi instructions. And you'll see this in verse 14. He says, do all the things without complaining and disputing. There should be unity among brethren. Now, when he has to say, do things without complaining and disputing, evidently there's a tendency of, for the church to do that. Why should you do that? Look at verse 15. So that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So, this generation that the apostles are living in, and in our generation, it is a crooked and a perverse generation, isn't it? There's no faith. It just operates on the principles of the world. And the principles of Satan as well. And when we follow the dictates of the world, and we follow the patterns of the world, we become part of that crooked and perverse generation, and we, like them, are faithless. And the apostles, these nine apostles, are acting just like everybody else, and they are faithless. They don't have a bit of faith in them. And so Jesus is very disappointed, and uh, he expresses that disappointment there in verse 17. Then, in verse, or verse, six, or verse 17, at the beginning of verse 17, he says, O faithless and perverse generation. And then, sort of in disgust, he asks a question. Look at that question in the middle of verse 17. How long shall I be with you? Look at that. Can't you sort of see this, this frustration? How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? How long do I have to put up with this nonsense? Think of 
bet you he's asking that about us. We just can't hear him. Well, we can hear it here. Apply it. Isn't three years with Jesus enough to be able to heal somebody? I mean, they were healing back in chapter 10. What's happened? What's going on? Why have you slipped back into those old patterns? You should have enough experience now for a very efficient ministry. So look what he says next at the end of verse 17. Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour, an instantaneous cure. So the problem is not astrological. (laughs) The problem is not physical. He just doesn't have a disease. The problem is demonic. Now, back in chapter 10, he also gave them the power over demons, remember? And remember how they came back and they were all excited and said, even the demons are subject to us. But they're not subject to them now. They don't have any power whatsoever. So Jesus heals the person immediately. Now, notice we have three people that have been speaking. We had, first of all, the scribes say something. And guess what? They are wrong in their interpretation. The way they think Elijah's going to come back, Messiah's coming back, is wrong. It's a wrong interpretation. They misread the situation. The father wrongly interprets his son's problem. He says it's astrological. He's moonstruck. Just like that, Jesus sizes it up, and he realizes it's demonic. And with one word... The demon flees. Now we come to this third scene in verse 19, and it's off stage. It takes place in private. Now look in verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Now that's an honest question. Boy, that was smart. Most of us never even had that thought. Well, when they came to us and we prayed and they weren't healed, why why weren't they healed? We just sort of want to ignore it or give some, explain it away. Well, we're not in the age of miracles or something like that. These guys are smart enough just to ask the honest question, why couldn't we cast it out? And so an honest question demands a straight answer. And Jesus gives it to them in verse 20. He said, because of what? Because of your unbelief. Now, that's about as straight as you can get. First of all, he called them a faithless generation, and now he says, because of your unbelief. It's as simple as that. We do not see the miraculous because we have such little faith. We do not see the miraculous because we have such little faith. We believe God can heal, but we don't believe that he will heal. We hope that he'll heal, but we don't know that he'll heal. Jesus knows immediately God's will, and Jesus has no problem whatsoever. So Jesus believes without reservation. And then he says this. He gives an explanation. For, it's because of your unbelief, for assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, 
you will say to this mountain, he probably points over there to Mount Hermon there, move from here to there and it will move. Now Jesus is speaking metaphorically. This is a proverb that you can speak to a mountain that will move. And Jesus is saying, if you have faith, uh, there's no obstacle. An obstacle can be as big as this mountain and it will be no problem whatsoever. If you have faith, uh, how much faith? What's he say? Mustard seed size faith can move any obstacle, no matter how big it is. It's not the amount of faith we have. It's about God. <laughs> Look, a little faith in a big God <laughs> can produce miracles. Because your faith has to have an object. And who's our object? God. What, what is it that God cannot do? There's nothing that he cannot do. So he says, these are Jesus' words. These are, this, this blows your mind when you think of this. You shall say to this mountain, move, and it will move. A little faith in a big God produces results. And then look at the end of verse 20. He says this. He says, and nothing, look at that. Well, there'll be a few things. No, nothing will be impossible to you. So how much is impossible to us with a little faith in a big God? What do you say? Nothing. But we really don't believe it. We believe potentially that's true, but for some reason we just don't grasp it. See, So we accomplish, I'm convinced we accomplish so little for the kingdom because of our unbelief. And I'm in the same boat with you. I'm not saying that I'm any better. I, I have every single hang-up, and it's because we're part of this enlightenment age, this age of reason, this age of rationale. And I think it would have been easier maybe to live back in Bible times when people didn't have all this all the science that sort of, we put things in categories, religious categories, scientific categories. And we no longer ha need God as much <clears throat> because we've been able to figure out a lot of things for ourselves. Um, but this is Jesus' teaching. Now we have a caveat here. And that caveat is found in verse 21. Here's what it says. However, this kind, I mean this kind of demon does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, some of your Bibles will have a footnote there. <clears throat> Does your, any of your Bibles have a footnote on that verse? And it says that it's not found in, in some of the translations. And uh, this is probably the case in this situation. Uh, most of our older translations do not have this verse in Luke. Verse 21 is not there in the older translations. Older manuscripts, actually. But it is in the Gospel of Mark. Same verse is in the Gospel of Mark. And probably somewhere along the line, as people were copying the scriptures, one of the copyists took that verse and added it to Luke so that Luke and Mark would jive. That's a possibility. We're not sure of that. That's just all theory. But uh, whether that happened or not, this verse contains truth, doesn't it? 
There's truth in this verse. See? And it takes prayer and it takes seeking God in order to see God move. Someone said something like this. We must meet God first in the private place through prayer before we meet man in the marketplace with power. We must meet God in the private place through prayer before, meaning we're able, <laughs> to meet man in the marketplace with power. And let's face it, most of us simply don't do that because our days are so crowded, we have work to do, we have kids to watch, we have all these different things that are finances to handle, you know. And we don't spend the time with God, and therefore we don't have the power of God to see these miracles happen. Jesus was always getting off by himself, getting with God, getting God's mind, and constantly being filled with the Spirit and God's power. And this is one of the reasons that we don't see. All of our other explanations, I think, are faulty. Not the age of miracles, not the dispensation of this. not Those are just theological excuses. You really want to get down to why we don't see things? We don't spend time on our knees with God, and therefore we don't have power with people. And I plead guilty, first of all. We need to have faith. Twice Jesus says, unbelief and faithless. Only believe. Only believe. All things are possible. What? If you only believe. If we just take it to heart, we'd see those miracles. We'll pick up in verse 22 next week. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has the final word. He is the authorized interpreter of your will. He is the one that possesses all power. He and you are one. Lord, we want to be close to you. We want to see your miracles, but are we willing to do what it takes? Oh, Lord, start with me. I know what I need to do. Oh, Lord, give me the willpower, the motivation, the desire, the stamina to do that, and then all things will fall into place. Lord, this is the prayer that I have, and this is the prayer that each one of us in this class has. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.